everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Point of Insanity Game Studios, Geekery in General Podcast. I am Al, and today we're going to be continuing our tour of the Outer Plains, as presented in First Edition's Manual of the Plains. The next stop, the Abyss, the realm of pure chaos and evil. Now first, let's take a look at the word, the abyss. The word in Greek is abyssos, and in Hebrew, the word is tohom. Translated, this means something to the effect of deep water. Now in the Old Testament, it is used to describe the unfinished creation. In the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 2, The earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while the wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Now this was said to be the state of the earth before the verse, let there be light. So just a little point of interest here. Tahom shares its origins with two similar words in Arcadian and Ugaritic. The Akkadian word is tamtu. Now, the Ugaritic word, and I'm not sure how it's pronounced because the way some of these ancient Mideastern languages were, they just had the consonants, so the reader would have to supply the vowels. Now, the word is T-H-M, so I'm not sure exactly how it would have been pronounced, possibly Tehem, and these two words, as well as Tehom, may be related to the Sumerian name Tiamat. Now, I've already talked a bit about Tiamat. If you go back to the episode on the Nine Hells, I mentioned that the Manual of the Plains pictures her as being kind of this uh, watchdog on the front door of the Nine Hells. Now, Tiamat in Sumerian mythology doesn't bear any resemblance to the Tiamat we know and love from Dungeons & Dragons. TSR, they came up with their image of the five-headed dragon, which makes sense as those are the five evil types of dragons. In Sumerian mythology, Tiamat was just pictured more as a great dragon and not the five-headed dragon from D&D. Now, since the word for the deep in this case may be related to Tiamat, it is intriguing to think that this may be hints of a primordial battle between God and some type of chaos monster. Not really too far-fetched of an idea, because... These types of pre-creation battles are common in not just the mythologies of the Middle East, but there's lots of legends and stories of pre-creation battles we see in many other uh, parts of the world as well. Again, we look at the Sumerians, we had the conflict between Marduk and Tiamat, Uh, also the Canaanites. Uh, they had a similar 
idea of this this battle um, in the form of uh, Baal, who was one of their head gods, and he fought a personification of the sea, and then later would go on to fight a personification of death. Now, more likely, it's possible the abyss may not have intended to be the personification of some great primordial chaos creature, but it may have been thought to be just simply the waters that were believed to be under the earth. This underground sea was the source of water for rivers and springs. So the abyss as this place of chaos and evil. Now there are said to be an infinite number of layers of the abyss, though the Manual of the Plains, and I think a few other sources back in the first edition days, did uh, put that number at 666, though this was believed to be more of an estimate as opposed to an actual concrete number. And it's not surprising because you know, that number, people would associate that with evil uh, because of the significance of that number in the Bible. Though actually, depending on what translation you use, the number of the beast wasn't always 666. Uh, In some translations, uh, or in some um, beliefs, the number is actually 616. Well, let's start with the most well-known of the demons that were pictured in the abyss, Orcus. The Orcus now, he actually is based on a deity from Roman mythology. In Roman mythology, Orcus is the lord of the underworld, as well as the god who punishes those who break their oaths. He looks nothing like the uh, Orcus we know from Dungeons and Dragons, though. He was said to represent just a great bearded giant. It is believed that his name may be the root of the word ogre, and J.R.R. Tolkien may have also used his name as inspiration for the word orc. Another well-known demon is Pazuzu, and he is said to rule the skies over all layers of the abyss. Now, it's fitting because in Mesopotamian mythology, he was the king of wind demons. He was also said to be the brother of another demon from Mesopotamian mythology called Humbaba, Now, this lion-faced demon was killed by the hero Gilgamesh. And Pazuzu and Humbaba were sons of the god Hanbi, who is the god of evil. Though, other than uh, him being the father to these two demons, we really don't know much about uh, Hanbi from Mesopotamian mythology. So it's possible that any stories that would have been told about him may have been lost. Now, 
Pazuzu was also said to be the bringer of drought and locusts. So obviously in the ancient world, this would be very, very uh, disastrous because since we are talking about an arid desert climate, having enough water was a very real uh, concern. And of course, locusts, doesn't matter where you are in the world, are always a cause for concern because you never know when those little buggers are going to come in and uh, destroy all your crops. Strangely enough, though, he also had a protective role. People would craft amulets to him with the hopes of warding off the demoness Lamastu. Now, this vile creature was said to be a, the greatest danger to pregnant women and women who had just given birth. She was also said to want to steal newborn babes so she could chew on their bones and drink their blood. Next is Demogorgon. And this demon has seen some popularity in recent years, thanks to the Netflix series Stranger Things. Now, my wife and I did actually watch the series. I'll be honest, I really didn't get interested in it in at first. I made it partly through the first episode and then just kind of lost interest. But my wife decided to convince me to giving it another try. And honestly... I did end up enjoying the series. And of course, in there, they do talk about uh, Demogorgon. And I think it's interesting how they were trying to describe the, you know, how there was the two worlds where, you know, they are just kind of flip sides of each other. Now, the name Demogorgon does actually appear in ancient Mediterranean literature. It first appears in a Latin poem called the Thebiad, which is about the seven warriors from Argos as they attack the city of Thebes. He's mentioned in a line, he is speaking of the Demogorgon, the supreme god, whose name it is not permitted to know. Now, it is possible that the name Demogorgon may have been uh, mistranslated from uh, the Greek word demiorgon, which is from where we get the word demiurge. Now, the demiurge does play a role in mythology. The demiurge is the architect of the material world though he isn't necessarily a creator god. In some Greek sources, the Demiurge was pictured as being benevolent, but since he was forced to fashion the world out of chaos, the material world was imperfect because of that. Now, I'd like to go back to one of my previous episodes. Um, After I talked about the Nine Hells, I did an episode on the seven heavens. And some of the some of you who listened to that episode, you probably recognize the name Demiurge. In the religion of Gnosticism, the Demiurge 
was the creator for the material world, but was far from being benevolent. Gnostics believed that the God of the Old Testament was not the true God, that above this God was, well, some people called him the true God, or the living God, or the true Father, and others just called it the planora, the light. And various uh, beings called aeons emanated from this, this light in male-female pairs. Now, the final and weakest emanation was Sophia, wisdom. And Sophia tried to create her own emanation without the help of her male counterpart. And she created a being known as Ildeboa, or child of chaos. Something to translates to something to that effect. And this uh, god figure was ignorant of anything more powerful than it was, and it declared itself to be the only god. And uh, the uh, Sophia, she tricked the Demiurge into breathing his light, or what power of the light he did possess, into the first man he created, which, of course, made Ildeboa very upset because now this this mere mortal was now superior to him. So what Ildeboa did is he created the material world and also created Eve uh, and brought about reproduction so that way he could trap bits of light, the spiritual energy, in the material world so it could suffer. And Gnostics believe that after you die, you had to ascend through these these different heavens in order to rejoin the light. But at each heaven, there was a guardian, an archon, and you had to answer a question that this archon would give you. And if you failed to answer, they would create a new body for you and then send you back into the material world. And it wasn't, of course, for any sort of uh, sense of kindness or compassion. It's just they wanted to send you back into the material world so you could continue to suffer. So it appears that Demigoron, in this case, actually, uh, rather the Demigoron from uh, Stranger Things, obviously that fits more in line with the second interpretation of the Demiurge as opposed to the one that may have been viewed in the uh, Thebiad. Next is Baphomet, and this is the Lord of Minotaurs. Now, this character is actually quite famous for being depicted in tarot cards. Usually, he is used for the card of the devil. Chances are you've seen a picture of the of this card, or at least the image that inspired it. Uh, usually it's pictured as a hemaphrodite uh, being sitting cross-legged with a goat or a ram's head. Now, depending on what version of the tarot you get, the devil card 
usually represents being seduced by physical pleasures, by the material world. It's also pictured as being associated with a lust for money and power. And in that regards, it actually fits in quite nicely with the uh, way that the, the Demiurge was pictured in Gnosticism. Now, uh, the other place in history where we see uh, the mention of Baphomet is from the people who opposed the order called the Knights Templar. These knights were accused of worshipping Baphomet. And images of Baphomet were later popularized by the uh, well-known ceremonial magician and author Aleister Crowley. It's possible that the image of Baphomet may have been inspired by an Egyptian god known as Bain Jabebet, and that was that's how he was known in, in Lower Egypt. In Upper Egypt, he was known as Kunum. This god had the head of a ram and was said to form bodies for human children on a potter's wheel. Hmm. Again, sounds kind of similar to uh, the idea in Gnosticism on how they would form this new body for you to send you back into the material world. Though in the case of Kunum, he wasn't really pictured as evil, so he was just a god that created the physical body for people. So while it's similar, it would be an extreme stretch of the imagination to suggest that these two beings were believed to be one and the same. Now, Manual of the Plains does mention that there are not a lot of uh, gods or goddesses from uh, real-world uh, mythologies or cultures that live in the abyss. And this is because the plane is primarily ruled over by demons, so it would probably be very difficult for a deity to gain a foothold here. But, needless to say, there are a few that are there. Though, two of the ones mentioned in Manual of the Plains, I'm not exactly sure that they necessarily fit here. First is Tau Mu, and this is the goddess of the North Star. In Chinese mythology, she was believed to be the mother of the stars of the Big Dipper. She was also the goddess of life and death. She is said to keep a book containing the deeds and assigned lifespans of all people who ever lived. She was also said to be a judge of the dead as well. Now, Here's why I don't think this deity belongs in the abyss. And maybe Jeff Grubb uh, knows something I don't know, because when I was trying to do some research on this, this goddess, I really didn't find anything that would really picture her as a chaotic evil goddess. She was actually said to look very favorably on acts of compassion, 
and people would pray to her for the hopes of living longer years. So that's why I don't really believe that she belongs here, unless there's some story that, as I said, uh, Jeff Grubb and anyone who helped him write this book, maybe they found uh, some story that tells something I don't know. I mean, the depiction she has in the deities and demigods is actually fairly fitting. She was pictured as having multiple arms, often holding weapons and even a dragon's head. But that's about where all the the similarities end. There's also another Chinese god here, Lu Yue, the god of epidemics. It's possible this is just a misinterpretation of Wen Shen. Now, Wen Shen is sometimes pictured as an individual god, sometimes as a group of gods who are associated with disease. Now, he wasn't necessarily worshipped, but more placated with offerings mainly with the hope that he would protect the village from disease. One ritual involved setting a model boat afloat on a river with hopes that it would carry away any diseases that would be plaguing the community. Now, Deities and Demigods does describe him as having three heads, so maybe this is a possibly how they interpreted it um, since... Again, some sources say that Wen Shen was actually several gods as opposed to a single entity. And as you might expect, of course, a lot of his attacks have to do with inflicting diseases upon people. Next is Kali. And this is the Hindu goddess of death, destruction, and time, and even change. She was said to wear a necklace made of severed heads. But, oddly enough, despite this depiction and the fact that she was associated with death and destruction, she was also seen as a mother goddess and was also said to protect as well as destroy. Now let's compare that to Pazuzu. Both were somewhat described as being evil, or at least evil as we would interpret it in uh, most Western cultures, but they also had these protective functions where they would frighten other hostile evil creatures. Maybe this was understood to be a warning of what happens to those who fight monsters, I'm not exactly sure how the quote goes, but I think it was Nietzsche who said something to the effect of, uh, you know, those who fight monsters should be aware that they themselves do not become monsters. That's just a possible interpretation, though, or just more or less just my opinion. Again, I'm not really sure that she does belong here, Uh, considering the fact that she did also have that uh, maternal aspect to her being. But since she was associated with death and destruction, maybe it's kind of fitting that she pictured here. 
And also, since she is the goddess of change, well, that's another reason why I think she might not necessarily belong in the abyss. And that's just because we have to consider what Hindus believed and how they believed in the cycle of life. Because again, you might recall that uh, they're similar to Buddhists in that they believe that the soul goes through cycles where it's it's born, it lives, it dies, and then it comes back again. So again, death wasn't really seen as an ending to things, but rather the start of something new. Now, there's, of course, many other deities that are uh, pictured as being in the abyss. Most of them are uh, fictional deities, as far as I could tell. Like the, I don't remember the names off the top of my head, but uh, like the the god of the Knolls, for example, uh, is pictured as being here. Um, the god uh, Jubilix. You know, the, that's worshipped by any sort of slimes or mold-like creatures. Uh, also here as well, uh, Lolth, the uh, drow goddess. Well, how might you go about adventuring in the abyss? There is a module I remember from back in the day, Throne of Bloodstone. And this was the fourth in the Bloodstone Pass series. And it is a very interesting module. And I've played through it a few times. It's one of the hardest modules I've ever seen. And it's designed for characters level 18 to 100. And I remember when they were uh, describing some of the player characters uh, that they that pre-generated... They had some that you would you wouldn't be surprised to find in there, like a a high level paladin, a high level ranger, a high level cleric, and etc. But they also had four one hundredth level characters that were loosely based on characters from Greek mythology. And I remember they were saying that, well, we don't believe that anyone has legitimately created a 100th level character in that, you know, you played from level 1 to level 100, it is still always tempting to want to play a really powerful character. So they introduce these characters into the, as, as pregens. Now, the reason that I think this could be really challenging is if you are doing a very strict interpretation of the rules. Because as I recall... Magical weapons and armor lose their pluses as they they move from the, the prime material plane to the ethereal and astral planes and then to the outer planes. Uh, so, for example, if you had a, it's like a sword plus two, as an example, you take it into the, like the astral plane, uh, it becomes like a, I'm th- wait, no, I think it's the ethereal plane. It's like if you take it to the ethereal plane, it becomes a plus one sword. You take it to the astral plane, it becomes a plus zero magic weapon. So it's still magical, it's just not going to grant any bonuses. And then you take it to the outer planes, it becomes just a regular 
uh, sword. So you you got to be packing some pretty powerful gear to tackle this adventure. Also, uh, clerics have another disadvantage because depending on how you want to interpret the rules, you can only gain certain spells when you are in the outer planes. Um, so for example, let's say you got a cleric of a lawful good deity. And if that cleric goes to the abyss, since you're on the opposite side of the wheel, the power from that deity is going to have a harder time reaching you. So I, I think you can only regain up to like second or third level spells. So all your really powerful spells, well, they're, you know, kiss them goodbye. You better save them for when you absolutely need them. And that's not including the other fun rules, like, okay, if you're going to be gone for several days, how are you carrying all your food, your water, and your other supplies that you need to survive? Now, the other interesting thing about a Throne of Bloodstone, it does also work Tiamat in there. We've talked a bit about her in this episode, and uh, spoiler alert for... Uh, uh, a module that's many years old, but the uh, point of Throne of Bloodstone is you got to get the Wand of Orcus, and then once you get the Wand of Orcus, you have to seep it in the blood of the Heart of Tiamat. So not only do you have to find Orcus's lair, fight your way into his palace, kill Orcus, take his wand, you then got to go to the Nine Hells, where you have to fight Tiamat, who's accompanied by her five dragon mates, and then after you defeat her, then you have to cut open her body and put the Wand of Orcus into uh, the blood of Tiamat's heart. So, yeah, not a module for the faint of heart. When we're looking at modules from, like, the first, second edition... Probably the only more challenging one I've seen is probably the Apocalypse Stone. But then again, that adventure is intended to end your campaign, uh, to go out with a bang. So you would expect that to be a, an extremely difficult adventure. Now, another reason that uh, being in the Abyss can be very challenging is since... There's hundreds of layers. You never know where you're going to end up. Um, as I recall, uh, portals to other layers, and even portals to get back to the uh, ethereal plane or the astral plane, just looked like pits, like holes in the ground. So maybe you found a way back to the astral plane, or maybe you just might go to another layer. Now... Other than Orcus's lair and a couple of the other layers in Throne of Bloodstone, the only lair that I've ever really seen really, really fleshed out was Lowell's lair, which um, is detailed in the adventure Queen of the Demon Web Pits. But when you do go to another lair, unless the Game Master decides, okay, you're going to Kali's lair you're going to Baphomet's lair. There's a table you roll on. 
So you might end, find your way to a layer that's basically just a great desert. Or you might find yourself on a glacial layer, which means you have to deal with being trapped in the uh, plane of elemental ice. Uh, there's also layers that resemble limbo or some of the other planes, like the plane of earth or the plane of fire. One particularly nasty layer you might find your way to is the layer of delusion, which appears to be similar to the prime material plane, but everything here is out to kill you. And I, I believe they mention that uh, they do give you that option to go to that layer in Throne of Bloodstone where you think you're back in Bloodstone Pass and they're trying to, or the City of Bloodstone rather, and they're trying to prepare a welcoming party for you. But of course the food is poisoned and everyone's trying to kill you. And there is even the slight possibility you might get to the layer of evil incarnate. So while the seventh layer of the seven heavens is said to be the the plane of ultimate good, you know, you when when you enter that layer, if you are good aligned, you essentially you cease to exist because your innate goodness, you know, your your pure noble spirit rises up to become part of the plane. Whereas neutral and evil characters are snuffed out. So it should be no surprise that people who are unlucky to find themselves here, if you're good aligned, you have to make a saving throw. Failure means you're snuffed out. Um, but if you succeed, you're just teleported to another plane. Neutral individuals um, also face this uh, danger as well, though evil characters that find their way here, instead of rising up to become part of the plane, they instead they are transformed into a creature called a bodok, which is essentially just a, a low-level subservient demon. So definitely can see this as a being a very challenging plane. And even though it's not first edition, I know they did discuss it in the Planescape setting. And I do have one of the books from there called Planes of Chaos. Um, I'm not sure if it was part of the box set or if it was sold as its own book uh, because I just got it as a used bookstore at a used bookstore. So for all I know, it may have came with the original set, but they do talk about in the, the abyss in there and uh, that essentially power and strength is the only thing that matters here. So if you want to survive, essentially you have to find a way to either overpower uh, your your captors or your your opponents. Not always going to be an easy task, of course. Or you have to bribe them. Uh, I remember in the book they were saying that um, creatures in the Nine Hells, or Bator, uh, they take their duties nor seriously because they are, you know, they're lawful despite being evil. Whereas the demons that inhabit the abyss, well, they'll pretty much only fulfill their duties if they think that they would get caught if they, they slack off. 
So essentially the right bribe might just get you out of trouble. Or you have to prove that you can be useful to one of these demon lords. Well, that's about all I have to say about the Abyss for now. Again, certainly a very interesting plane in that we know there are at least a couple supplements where they've gone into detail um, both the Throne of Bloodstone and then where they also uh, detailed Lolf's Realm in the uh, Queen of the Demon Web Pits. So definitely uh, not a place that you want to end up, especially if you're a mid to low level party. Well, we're going to end this episode, so I'd like to thank you for tuning in and have a good evening or morning or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.